can be saved. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I just want to um, take a minute to say how wonderful it is to be with you all today. Um, North Point, I've only been here for a very short time, but I've felt so welcome here. And, um, and I'm so blessed to have found this community and to be, be a part of it. So thank you for how welcoming you have been. When I was in college, there was a particular class that was known to be everyone's favorite. Everyone loved it. The actual title of the class was called something like Religious Approaches to Meaning, but all the students on campus just referred to it as the Meaning of Life class. It was taught, I remember, by Albert Blackwell. He was tall, he had snow white hair, he was in his mid-70s, everybody loved him. In this course, this, this Meaning of Life class, addressed exactly that. All of those deep questions that we all have, the questions that we have at our core. What does it mean to be human? Why are we here? In our passage today, we meet a man who has just this kind of question. Known as the rich young ruler, in Mark's version, we're told neither that he is young nor that he is a ruler, only that he is a man. He approaches Jesus with an earnest question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Isn't that a question that we all have at our core? What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I gain entrance into the kingdom of God? I want you to picture in your mind someone that you know who seems to have it all together. So we all know people like this. They have, they have everything, they have it all together, they're successful, attractive, they're smart, they have a good family, they have a good career. Do you have that person in your mind? We all know someone. This is a picture of the man who approaches Jesus on the road. He has it all, he has it made. He's wealthy, which in Jesus's day was a sign of divine blessing. It was a sign of, of, of God's blessing on him. Not only was he wealthy, but he was also good. He was righteous. He kept all the laws. He kept the commandments. So he had it all. He was the perfect candidate for entrance into the kingdom of God. But deep down, he had that burning question inside of him, that longing to know for sure, have I done enough to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't answer his question directly, but instead he quotes the second half of the 10 commandments, those that are related to how we interact with one another, how we approach one another, how we treat each other. This man probably with a sigh of relief says, yes, I've kept them all. 
But Jesus knows that although he checks all the boxes on the outside, he lacks one thing. His heart is divided. The greatest commandment, to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, to have no other gods before the one true God, this is what he lacks. But Jesus doesn't respond to him in anger or with a tone of judgment. The text says in verse 21 that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked him straight in the eye and out of love for him, told him what he most needed to hear. Most of you probably don't know um, about me that I worked for several years as a cochlear implant audiologist at a large medical center. And most patients who receive cochlear implants have lost their hearing gradually over time, or a few of them potentially have lost it suddenly. Um, and cochlear implants work very well for this population. But I remember one patient in particular who had been deaf since birth. He was born deaf. He uh, was in his mid 40s, um, but he had read about implants and he came to us wanting to try it. And I did everything that I could to give this man realistic expectations for what an implant could do for him. But as much as I tried to convince him that he would probably never be able to understand speech without reading someone's lips, he had built his hopes up and he really wanted to try. So after he had the surgery, he received the implant, he came in and he did everything that we asked him to do. He came faithfully to his appointments. He did his homework exercises that I gave him. He even went to see an auditory therapist. That after one year of having the implant, I had to look him in the eye and say, I'm so sorry, but I know you've worked so hard, but it's just not gonna get any better. Though it was hard for him to take, it was what he needed to hear. It was necessary in order for him to move forward. In a similar way, Jesus looks at this man and tells him what he needs to hear. I know you've worked so hard, but you lack one thing. It may have been what he needed to hear, but it certainly wasn't what he wanted to hear. Jesus gives him four commands, all imperatives. Go, sell, give, and then come and follow me. Sometimes this passage is interpreted as being about salvation through, uh, through works instead of relying on faith alone. But that doesn't really fit the context of the passage. Jesus doesn't say, just have faith and you'll be saved. Nor is that the conclusion that the man comes to or the disciples come to. In fact, Jesus actually does give the man something to do. Go, sell, give, and come. But he can't do it. Jesus invites him to become a disciple, but that requires an undivided heart, a singular devotion to Jesus above all else. And the text says that he went away grieving because he was one who had many possessions. This man had built a life for himself that looked great on the outside. He was the perfect candidate for the job of disciple. But Jesus looks at him with great love. He drives right to the heart of what was keeping him from entering the kingdom. And he does the same thing for us. He looks at each one of us with deep love and asks, what are you holding on to? What can you not let go of? And he invites us to release our grip on those things 
and to receive his love in return. For us, it might not be wealth. Perhaps it's our family. Perhaps it's our career, our reputation. Even as I've been preparing this sermon this week, I've had to continually ask myself, who am I doing this for? What is this person going to think? What is this person? Is this person going to prove? And I've had to continually bring that before the Lord and say, why am I doing this? Am I trying to please other people? Or am I trying to please the Lord? The idol of the approval of others can have just as much of a hold as the idol of wealth. So whatever it is, and it's likely something different for every person in this room, Jesus looks us directly in the eye with love. And he says, it's okay to let it go. While wealth may or may not be our own primary struggle, it was the issue of this particular man. And it's one that the Bible mentions frequently. Warnings about the dangers of wealth, the love of money can be found throughout the Old and the New Testaments. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus is clear that we cannot serve both God and money. Perhaps one reason why wealth is mentioned so often throughout the scriptures is because it can have such a strong hold in our life. It has the potential to take root in a way that not everything can. It gives us a feeling of power and control. And so I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he says in verse 23, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are surprised by this because again, in the culture at the time, wealth was a sign of God's blessing. So they're shocked by this. But here Jesus says, no, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. And then comes verse 25, probably one of the most infamous sayings in the gospels. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. What? Did Jesus really say that? As we've said before in this series, these words of Jesus are often meant to pack a punch, right? They're meant to make us uncomfortable. And though we might be tempted to downplay our own financial status by comparing ourselves to those that we consider to be rich, the truth is that most likely every person in this room has vastly more wealth than could even be imagined in the first century. Now, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that Jesus is intentionally speaking with hyperbole here. Jesus does not mean that no one with any degree of wealth can ever be saved. Jesus calls many people to follow him who he does not ask to sell all of their possessions and give, give them away. And people with some degree of means, like Lydia, for example, use their wealth to support the ministry, to support the church. So it's not the wealth itself that's the problem, but it's the posture of the heart. The man in our passage placed his trust in his wealth instead of in God. On the other hand, I also don't want us to miss the shocking nature of the statement. So Jesus is comparing the largest known animal at the time in the region, a camel, with the smallest known space at the time, the eye of a needle. The contrast between the camel and the eye of the needle is intentional. It's meant to shock the audience. There's a well-known popular tradition that some of you may have heard of, that there was a small gate in the wall around Jerusalem called the needle's eye gate. 
And a camel, the story is a camel could not fit through this gate unless it removed its baggage and got down on its knees and then it could maybe fit through. Uh, if this is what the original audience of Mark's gospel would have understood to be Jesus to be referring to, then his words would have meant that it's only possible if, if people remove their love of money and humble themselves. Now, I searched four commentaries and every one of them said that actually there's no historical basis for this, for this tradition, um, but that it probably originated in the 11th or the 12th century. Um, but in my view, the, the, the issue is not so much, is there a gate or is there not? The issue is more that, that this idea of, of the gate, of, of removing our, our love of riches and humbling ourselves, it actually undermines the radical nature of Jesus's words. He doesn't say that there is a way for the rich to enter, but he says the opposite. It's impossible. And so it's no wonder that the disciples are amazed. They're astonished and they say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus gives them the reply, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. To enter the kingdom on our own merit or power is impossible. It comes only as the gift of God. But God has in fact made it possible, even for the rich, to enter the kingdom through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In the final section of this passage, verse 30, Mark brings us back around to this question of eternal life, the question that the man had brought to Jesus in the first place. And we said earlier that this is the fundamental question that all of us are asking. Just yesterday morning, I was reading an article um, on Christianity Today about this new chat GPT. Have you guys heard about this? Okay. So basically, this is this new artificial intelligence platform, and you can have full conversations with a computer, and it's eerily accurate most of the time. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of concern in some circles about this, right, because there, there could potentially be some big ethical implications for certain industries, especially like academia and tech, um, um, industries that, that involve sort of the generation of information. So this interview was with a man named Tom Keller, a Christian who has worked for over 40 years in the AI industry. And what caught my eye was this. He was asked by the interviewer, why is there an obsession with sentient AI? So this idea that robots have feelings, um, that they, they respond like similar to humans, how humans would respond. And this is what he said. He said, if you are a person of non-belief, you want to create something that gives you a hope in the future. On the AI side, we want something that will cause us to have eternal life. My consciousness is going to go into eternity because it's in a machine. It speaks more of the human desire than of where we are in terms of our progress. Did you catch that? We want something that will cause us to have eternal life. So it's, it's a deep desire in every person. And so at the end of this passage, we return to that question. What is the way to eternal life? So let's see how Jesus ends up there. Jesus says in verses 29 and 30 that no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel 
will fail to receive 100 times as much in this present age. Again, this is hyperbole. No one in the early Christian community would have expected 100 houses, right? But the point is clear. In the kingdom, you are part of a family. You are one of many brothers and sisters and mothers. And yes, there is a cost to being a disciple, but what has been left behind for the sake of the gospel will be returned with the abundance of the spiritual family, even in this life. And yes, there will also be persecutions, another cost of discipleship. But in the end, Jesus says, there is eternal life, what the rich man was after all along. So then the way to eternal life, the way of the kingdom of God is the way of discipleship. The kingdom of God that was announced by Jesus all the way back in Mark chapter one, to be part of it requires a kind of discipleship that is unlike anything the people would have expected. Discipleship wasn't something unique to Jesus only. All rabbis at the time had disciples, but the kind of discipleship that Jesus was looking for was drastically different. This man, again, was the perfect candidate to be a disciple. But Jesus says, no, I am bringing a different kind of kingdom, one that requires a different kind of disciple, someone who is last, someone who is willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. In the passage immediately preceding this one, Jesus has just said that anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then immediately following is this rich young ruler, right? So he's, he's the opposite of a child in almost every way. The contrast is striking and it's intentional. The rich man has status, prestige, and value according to society. But Jesus is looking for disciples who come to him like children with nothing. He's not looking for disciples with the best resume. In order to be Jesus's disciple, all you need is nothing, nothing but childlike trust in him, nothing except to receive his love for you. And that's hard because we are all holding on to other things. We hold to them tightly because they bring us significance, recognition. They make us feel good about ourselves. It's not only hard, the passage says, it's impossible. It's impossible for us to merit our own salvation. It's impossible for us to enter the kingdom on our own terms, clutching those idols that we love so much. But what is impossible for man is possible with God. God has made a way for us to enter the kingdom through the work of Jesus Christ. He offers us a life of radical discipleship. He offers us the freedom to release our grip on those idols and to fully embrace the good news of the kingdom and of his salvation. A kingdom that is more rich and more beautiful than any kingdom we could build for ourselves in this life. Samuel Wells, an Anglican priest, and professor of Christian ethics captures this well when he says, the problem is that the human imagination is simply not large enough to take in all that God has to give. We are overwhelmed. God's inexhaustible creation, his limitless grace, relentless mercy, enduring purpose, fathomless love. 
It's just too much to contemplate, assimilate, understand. This is the language of abundance. And if humans turn away, it is sometimes out of a misguided but understandable sense of self-protection, a preservation of identity in the face of a tidal wave of glory, end quote. The riches of the kingdom are unending and they're more than we can fathom. And it's what we're invited into, the way of eternal life. It's what the man wanted. It's what we all wanted. It's what we all want. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The good news of this passage for us today is that we don't have to do anything because in Christ, God has made the impossible possible. The way to eternal life is simply to come to Jesus as a willing disciple with nothing to offer. All that's required is that we take hold of the abundant life that is offered to us.